really need to understand our sources of data, what their actually limitations are, and what we can do with those data to tell a um, as close to truthful story as we can, and then utilize those data and the intelligence they give us, the story they tell us, to inform our decision making, particularly when it comes to policy and any programming that we may actually engage in to impact how those social determinants of health actually impact our patient population. Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show, where we believe that quality measurement leads to better outcomes. Let us become your go-to source for all things related to quality and medication use in healthcare. We will hit on trending health topics as they relate to performance measurements and find common ground for payers and practitioners. We will discuss how the Equip platform can help you with your performance goals, and we will also make sure to keep you up to date on pharmacy quality news. So buckle up and put your thinking cap on. The Quality Corner Show starts now. Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. This is your host, Nick Dorich, and we welcome you back to the show. In May of 2020, we had an episode that was our most listened to episode for season one of the Quality Corner Show. That's accumulating listens, downloads, and views across the various platforms from which you can find the Quality Corner Show. The topic was important to cover at that time, and it's just as important now. Therefore, we're going to bring you a two-episode mini-series for these next couple of weeks, focusing on social determinants of health, how that is taken into account with quality measurement, and what pharmacists can actively do to help address social determinants of health. Let's now introduce, or rather reintroduce, our guest. She's the first non-PQS staff member to make a second appearance on the PQS Quality Corner Show, and she was our speaker from last summer's episode. That is the beauty, Arya Mirfar. The beauty, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, I want to make sure we give you a formal introduction, and uh, for those that listened last year, they heard a little bit about your background, but can you please explain for us your background as a pharmacist and what you do now? Sure. So I, um, the beauty, I... Uh, graduated with my PharmD, completed a two-year residency at the University of Minnesota in pharmaceutical care leadership, and I then went on to teach at St. John's University, my alma mater. And my practice site is uh, sort of unique in that because I've had some pretty deep roots in public health and social justice throughout my, actually even before I engaged with pharmacy per se, I had some pretty strong public health roots. And so my practice site is actually with the New York City Health Department where I focus on public health uh, policy and programming and integrating pharmacists and pharmacies into public health initiatives, all with the lens of equity and serving communities um, throughout the city. Beauty, thank you for that introduction. And I want to make sure that we are focusing our conversation today on our topic, social determinants of health. If you haven't listened to our episode from May of 2020, please go back and check out that episode. Uh, it's a great conversation. Uh, but for today, we're actually going to be building off some of that conversation. And we're going to be talking about how we can utilize data to better understand social determinants of health and how that helps to improve quality of care for patients. Now, before we get into the conversation, I want to provide a quick overview of what comes next. I have three questions written down for our conversation. I'll go down the list and ask the first question. The beauty, you'll respond. We may have some back and forth, or I may summarize the key points. 
We're going to repeat that process for the second and third questions, which wraps up our primary content for this recording. But when we get to the end, we'll have a question that's a little bit more fun. It may not be related specifically to pharmacy or medication, but we want to know our guest a little bit better. Now with that process described, let's go ahead. We're going to jump into question one. With last year's show, we addressed that social determinants of health are the conditions and the environments in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect their health and well-being. Healthcare and social determinants of health are on a collision course, or perhaps we've already crossed that point of interaction. When we talk about quality measures or when we talk about healthcare quality, good intentions may not address all of those social determinants of health. The beauty of my question for you to get us started how do we better understand social determinants of health through data? Great question. So I think the initial sort of what I'll start out with is really understanding what I credit my public health degree to give me a deeper understanding um, for is really to understand data in how they tell a story, right? So they, data are just data and they sort of turn into intelligence when we analyze them and when we understand their limitations and what they're actually trying to tell us. So I would suggest that, you know, no data is actually better than having bad data, right? So we don't want data that are gonna lead us down um, what we think is a data-informed or data-driven decision path, but that actually may tell us either part of the story that then we fill in the rest of it with assumptions or they just sort of tell us a bad story and or something that actually is untrue and that we take to be the truth and then make decisions accordingly. So we really do have to focus on data so we can make better decisions. And, you know, then you go back and look at data to measure impact or ensure that you actually have done something um, that has been positively impactful or understand how we could do things better, right, in quality. I think that what's really important to understand is that we have to be very thoughtful and have and invite expertise, so to speak, who are involved and engaged who can speak that language because you need to make sure we have people who know how to clean the data, know what it actually says and what it doesn't say. Just like anything, for example, with you know a, a good journal club when we're teaching our students, for example, or even practitioners, right? That every study has its limitations and we have to ensure that we don't just take studies and blow them out of proportion, for example, and critically analyze them and critically examine them so that we can understand what we need to glean from it and what we don't. Similarly, data also have their limitations. Everything has its limitations. And so if we don't actually invite ourselves to have a critique of those data, what are they telling us? Where are the data sources coming from? Um, what are we actually getting? What story can we tell? Is there part of a story that we're misrepresenting and or leaving out? Those are really critical questions to ask, particularly when it relates to social determinants, because I think a lot of people assume a lot of things about social determinants, and some of it is portrayed in a way that sort of confirms that, right? So we enter into the world of confirmatory bias when we're looking at certain data that confirm what we already think. And so it's really important for us to understand where those data sources are, right? Why are we even interested in those data? Where are we getting them? What are they telling us? And what do we know about their limitations? If we can understand that similar to, for example, in epidemiology, right, when you're designing a study, um, you have to understand how you're going to be evaluating something just in the beginning as you're starting to plan it, right? Because then it aligns and it helps us understand that we have, for example, data points or information coming in that we're going to be able to utilize 
at the end to measure impact or measure um, performance. Similarly, with data, we have to know right off the bat what those sources are, what they're telling us, what the limitations are. And I know I'm beating this drum again and again and again um, because it's really important so that we can clean that stuff up, so to speak. When an emergency happens, for example, in emergency preparedness, which is where I sort of sit in the health department, it's really important for us to understand that we're not bombarding our processes and our logistics and our organization and planning with tons of variables that we have to collect, for example, because when it's crisis mode, right, if you're going to get your COVID vaccine, for example, you know, you're not going to sit there. Maybe you are. I don't know. But it's going to be hard to rely on 100 percent success rate of somebody giving you all sorts of pieces of data when they're under circumstances of heightened anxiety, when they're under circumstances of, you know, an operation whose sole purpose really is to get people in and out with vaccines or medications, whatever we might be doing in a public health response. Um, so that's a really long winded way of saying that we really need to understand our sources of data what their actually limitations are and what we can do with those data to tell a um, as close to truthful story as we can and then utilize those data and the intelligence they give us, the story they tell us to inform our decision making, particularly when it comes to policy and any programming that we may actually engage in to impact how those social determinants of health actually impact our patient population. The beauty, thanks for the, the answer. And I, I'm going to hone in on the parts that I hear loud and clear. We need to have, with data, it's important for us to have both the subjective and objective information that goes to these experiences. We need to have consistency with data because at, at any one day, a patient could be having a bad day, right? And Or there there could be other circumstances which may elevate or, or change results, which may not be the true case for that patient. So how this information is collected, how routinely it's co collected is really helpful for understanding how we apply these data sets to improve our process on a routine day in, day out basis. So that becomes really clear. And as you said it, when we're giving the information to a healthcare provider, and as that healthcare provider is creating the action plan with the patient and the care team, provide simple steps, provide simple data points that allow them to create the process so that they can they can really run with it. I do wanna move us now to our second question, and this is gonna be about application, All right? So we are already started to reference that, but with any quality improvement process, change and improvement are not only essential, but they are really the entirety of the process. They have mm -hmm. to be happening continuously. Improvement is the name of the game. And what happens if we as a healthcare industry are able to improve the quality of data, it allows us to better understand social determinants of health. So do you have any real world examples of how healthcare providers or teams that you've been on, do you have any examples of how you've been able to utilize data to better improve care for patients? Yeah, great question. Again, um, I think that one of the important things there is to understand how uh, data are utilized, right? So we use data to, again, make our case, essentially. For us in public health, we're really focused on two things, I would say, major. One is the application of those data on a one-on-one -on -one sort of zip code, right, in, in our patient sort of scenario. There are a lot of things that aggregate data can tell you, trends, things that are happening in a community on a level that's a little bit higher level thinking, right, that can show us what an aggregate impact may look like, for example. But when you apply it to your patient situation, particularly when it comes to social determinants, we have to be very careful in how we're utilizing those data. 
it it gives us sort of a little bit of a guideline in terms of how we can how we can apply it to our patients but it also tells us that here's maybe the trend lines that we're looking at but my patient situation in their own social determinants right where they live where they work eat play worship age all of those situations can actually inform me to say okay for my patient, how do I approach what I want the priority to be when it comes to their care, when it comes to their treatment, when it comes to their decision making? And that's a lot of where shared decision making can happen. And the other thing I would say is to also inform policy, right? Because there are assumptions that we make about the landscape of our communities, and there are assumptions that we make about how accessible even policy decisions and or things that we make mandatory or whatever may impact our small communities, our small businesses, et cetera. If we don't have an appreciation of our landscape of our community, it's going to be really difficult for us to apply those data in a very useful way because we're thinking about it more utopian rather than what actually is happening in our communities. One of the ways I would say there are two things that I would say that we need to think about. One is, you know, particularly in pharmacy, we while we are seeing a little bit more of an interest, we haven't seen as much utility of, for example, ArcGIS, which is a program that looks at geospatial data, right? So we also say that, for example, pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare professional in the community. And while I'd argue that that might be true in some cases, I think what we're really saying is that pharmacies as a place are accessible. I'm not sure how much pharmacists might actually be accessible as the professional we can turn to in a community, right? That all depends on the setting, et cetera. But I do think that it's really important for us to think about what the landscape of pharmacy actually looks like. So for example, in New York City, one of the you know things that I think most people across the country, when they think about pharmacists and supply chain, for example, in pharmacies, think is, well, you know, I think that there are a lot of chains across our jurisdictions or our you know areas, and we need to sort of tap into those chains and think about how we can integrate pharmacists right into public health initiatives. When we mapped our pharmacy, so we got data from the state board, um, we had multiple partners, we sort of did this huge project, we mapped them all out, we classified them, et cetera. And what we found was quite startling to say that about 72% of all the pharmacies, so almost three quarters of all pharmacies across New York City were actually, are actually independently owned, which is a mind-blowing statistic for many, because I think the assumption was independents are going out of business, chains are really, you know, sort of taken over. And what was actually more interesting is that 91% of all the pharmacies in high poverty areas were actually independently owned, right? So the patients who were actually trying to reach through some of these initiatives to improve quality of care, to improve social service access, to improve policies even when it comes to access to care and improve social determinants of health and how they're impacting our patients, we really need to understand our community partners. And so that really changed the way that we framed our what our community partners look like, who we reach, who we tap into in those communities to actually reach our patients. And I think the other thing we need to also think about is we don't necessarily need new streams of data all the time, right? So one of the projects that I engaged in, it was the MIT had a hacking racism challenge last year. And I led a team and pitched this idea about actually utilizing ge uh, geospatial data. My friend, Adrian Simmons, who you will have on a future podcast, it was part of our team. And, you know, we were the pharmacist there in that team. And it was really great because what we pitched was 
we don't necessarily need new data, but we need to link existing data and make sense of the comprehensive story that these data tell and the perspective they bring to policy decisions. I think a lot of times data exists in silos and we know what healthcare provider data looks like, for example, or disease burden data. And perhaps more of the social work, right, social sciences, social community data understand who the faith-based organizations are that have a lot of influence in communities, where the community organizations are, for example. And our idea was that what we want to do is link those data so they can tell a better, more comprehensive story that actually can then tell us where the needs are for access, where the needs are, uh, for example, for COVID testing or COVID vaccines, right? Like, it's important for us to understand how we, we can very specifically link existing data sources to create a more comprehensive picture and then utilize those data because we want to be making data-driven decisions when it comes to programs that we create and programs that we, we frankly invest into, right, manpower and um, grants, et cetera and resources, but also the policy decisions that we make, advocacy work that we do to help improve access to care, access to social services, access to all sorts of different resources and resource allocation, frankly, in the areas in our communities that need need us the most. Vibhuti, thanks for the review and I love hearing about the hackathon. It's a, a great example of how pharmacist involvement with other programs or non-traditional opportunities can really go to showcase value of them as part uh, as part of a healthcare new idea generation. The landscape's it, particularly oh go go ahead. Sorry, no, I was gonna say I should probably mention that we actually won. <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, we did lead. win with the, with this idea. Yeah. And I and again to you know it's about sustainability, right? It's not about sort of creating these little blips on the map, but it's really about sustainability and creating ways that we can partner with perhaps what you said, like, you know, non-traditional avenues um, where pharmacists can get engaged in. We we harp on the fact that pharmacists are a part of their community and, you know, across the U.S. and globally, it is true. They serve even generations of families. And so we have to think about ways to leverage that relationship and that community connection to, to really see them as unique partners that can actually drive sustainable, innovative methodology where we can um, utilize data to drive, you know, our, again, our programs and our policies. One of the things that we did was we actually layered social determinants of uh, social determinants data onto pharmacy data in New York City. So then you could actually tell, for example, if you had high disease burden, let's say HIV burden in this specific area, um, and you've got a certain kind of pharmacy access there. So you've got tons of cluster pharmacies or whatever. We can measure the footprint and the landscape of pharmacies in those areas with high disease burden and then utilize that to push advocacy efforts through those pharmacies as key community partners, for example. So that was like a way for us to understand how to utilize, how to use data to show where pharmacies are and actually think about access in a very different way that directly informs policy and advocacy efforts. Yeah, the, the location and landscape is an important part. And and I think even just as my for myself as an example, where I live in Durham, North Carolina, my house now versus the apartment that I lived in previously. If you looked at and tried to identify the number of pharmacies that are in, let's say, a three mile radius from where you live, those locations may have the same access to a pharmacy location, but access to the pharmacist or the healthcare providers may be different based on when those pharmacies are open. You also have to take Absolutely. into account the people in those communities. If those are all uh, people that are working in service industry, food, 
janitorial services, if anything that's there, they may not have access, they may not have transportation to get to those pharmacies. So those pharmacies being open within three miles, if they're not open when the people are going and able to get those services, that pharmacy being there doesn't really do them a whole lot of good. And these are the types of conversations that you're really looking to try to drive with some of this information. And I, I do want to uh, move us beauty to our third question, and this all ties in. So we've often referenced pharmacist as the most accessible healthcare provider, but I would tend to agree with you. The pharmacy, the physical location is the most accessible. Whether or not the patient is able to see, interact, and work with their pharmacist is a different question. So regardless, I do think community pharmacists can help to identify and collect data so that social determinants of health can be better understood and that that data can be incorporated into better care for patients. That could be incorporated into quality measures, and it can be incorporated into healthcare policy. So I'd like to hear from you I mean, what's your perspective on this? What do we need to be doing as a community pharmacy uh, industry, as a pharmacy profession, so that we're improving this accessibility for data? Excellent. And and you're right on it. Actually, your example about the three miles is, is exactly the kind of application for these aggregate data, right? Because it doesn't matter unless we understand what's actually happening with our patient population and the, what their individual access looks like. I, I will say, I think that um, partnering and branching out a lot of times, and you know, we love our profession, but we tend to keep speaking to ourselves. And I think that it's really important for us to change the audience up a little bit. Um, I am a big proponent of patient advocacy, pharmacists getting on consumer boards, patient advocacy boards, getting involved in their local communities to understand those stories a little bit better. I think that it's really also important for pharmacists to partner with local health agencies, for example, and champions within their communities. So civic groups, right? So this, it, um, what I'm talking about is a little bit more of a civic engagement where I do see healthcare as part of that. And I think that part of what we need to be doing as pharmacists, I know that there's a big push for understanding how we can screen for social determinants of health, for example, which I would argue uh, quite possibly is a vital component of what pharmacists can do in a community. However, I also understand the challenge with payment reform models and currently how um, the viability of those you know, models are currently that may not support pharmacists from actually doing all those services. I think that one thing that we really need to take, take charge, so two things, I would say. One is partnering outside of pharmacy, so local health agency, community-based organizations, thinking about champions in the communities pharmacists can actually engage in. And, and again, civic engagement is important and part of that. The other thing also is to really clarify a lot of what we're talking about with payment reform models. I think a lot of times the public, and actually many pharmacists, see it as a compensation for the pharmacist type of conversation. Pharmacists, you know, frankly, make good money still. And I understand there are lots of challenges, but when pharmacists are working in a community, regardless of all the challenges, I think that they're still pretty well compensated in the eyes of the public. And so when we say we need, you know, better payment for screening for social health, it perhaps unintentionally and, and easily misunderstood, it cries out, I want more money. And I think that that's, uh, there's less sympathy there that, you know, the profession's going to get. I think that if we're truly talking about the payment payment models themselves of the business to support and sustain pharmacist services, cognitive services that go beyond dispensing, I think we need to be very clear and um, unified across that front. Um, so I do think that there's the partnership and the education and conversation with the external partners and really clarifying what payment reform means is really important. Yeah, that's a great point for beauty. It becomes important as well because the expectations for the patient are 
important here, right? They are patients have, have are trying to work through a confusing healthcare system, and having another healthcare provider that can provide these services that's that's useful. But it's important for them to know how that is coordinated with their primary care provider, and when the patient is paying for that service, what is that getting them? So that becomes a really key detail here uh, as we work through the healthcare system. Sorry, and I think that conversation needs to happen more and more about the payment and the and what it means to have access, right? So I've got, for example, students who are like my, you know, supervising pharmacist discourages me every time I try to look for like discount codes for patients, for example, to try to help them afford their medication a little bit better, you know, but I, I know it's complex and I know, and you know me, I don't, I'm always like move from the binary, either this or that to the both and, right? That embl- embraces that complexity. Um, but I do think that unless we talk about it and and talk about those various perspectives and not shut them down, we're not going to achieve that sort of well-informed, data-driven discussion because we're not inviting those perspectives to the table, which increases the importance, I would say, and how imperative it is for us to invite patient advocacy to the table, right? Patient groups, patient voices, and really think about, I mean, at the end of the day, all of us have been patients or care for our families who are patients in the healthcare system. And I think that we do need to hold that as a priority because these are people that we're serving, not just numbers and prescriptions, but their stories, their narratives, and their access is critically important as is to all our all our families. It's also important to all our patients. And it's important for us to, to participate in a very communal way with that and to, to actually impact positively. It's a great point, Vibidi. I had a, a mentor of mine that once described to me that if you can't describe something in 60 seconds, you're losing the argument. And I think that's a really key point. If you talk to any family members or friends who aren't in healthcare, who aren't in pharmacy, it becomes very difficult for them to understand you know, what a pharmacist does now versus what we're trying to do when we talk about provider status and payment reform. So there's still a lot of fine tuning there. Uh, it doesn't, and to be clear, the intricacies of it does not invalidate the argument of pharmacy to make these changes or how we can better improve care. It just means it just means that we need to work a little bit better on making that message clear and concise for everyone involved. 100%. Yep. All right. Well, Vibuti, I do want to thank you again or thank you for <laughs> for joining today's <laughs> conversation. It was a pleasure to have you back on the show and I'm excited to see you return for the Quality Corner show and I'll be interested to find out if this episode tops our views, listens, and downloads when comparing to our episode where you were featured for episode one. It's a tall task, but uh, you set the record for season one. Let's see if season two can be even better. I really appreciate it because last time we really, we had just addressed simply what are social determinants of health? Why does it matter? So I was glad to have you back. And at the end of that episode last year, we gave the tease that we'd come back to the topic and talk about it from a data perspective. We achieved that today. Uh, I assume at some point here in the future that we'll have you back and we can go further and more into this conversation and this topic. Uh, we are going to be speaking about social determinants of health next week with Adrian Simmons. As you mentioned, I'm very much looking forward to having her on the show. But the beauty, before we wrap up, I do have a final question for you. And it's always one that's a little bit fun, a little bit uh, exciting, perhaps not specifically related to pharmacy, but it may have application to pharmacy and healthcare. And it is well established, very well established that you are a big fan of Hamilton, the musical. You you might be the biggest fan that I know personally. And I would like to understand uh, what makes you love that piece of that. it's, It's art, right? And what makes you love that art? What lessons or themes do you think about or do you apply from that story that comes into everyday practice for you as a healthcare provider? 
You can't control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. <laughs> um, I can talk about this for hours. No, I love Hamilton. Yes, thank you very much. I There's a lot. I think that you know, I'm going to rattle off a list saying, dare I venture to say Lin-Manuel Miranda may be the Shakespeare of our times. Dare I say that I was ecstatic to see a huge people of color cast. Um, I think there will be a generation of kids who might watch Hamilton and think, why are we talking about racism? Because they were all, you know, folks of color back then <laughs> um, because of the representation. I, I love the musical. I think that there's a lot of ways in which we can apply. It's just very, very well done. I do think that there is an element of a community that I gain a sense from, right? First of all, I love as an immigrant that immigrants, we get the job done, love that line, but also that perhaps we should be embracing some of the Hamilton personalities in our profession. I think there's a lot of Aaron Burrs who, you know, know your role, don't talk as much, listen, what was, you know, smile, talk less, smile more. And I think that we need to really embrace that different perspectives are important and that while one of us may not think like the other or agree with the other, it's really important for us to engage in that discussion and have a sense of invitation for discussion, not just debate, to have a real conversation and learn as many perspectives as we can. Yeah, it doesn't cost you anything to listen uh, to another viewpoint and to learn more. That's something we should always be striving to, to do. And uh, going back again to uh, our prior conversation, right? It all comes down to understanding and having more good data. And that's what listening is about. So now, Vibuti, if anybody does want to hear more from you or if they have questions about today's topic, about data, about social determinants of health, how can they contact you? You can contact me at connect at vibutiaria.com, V-I-B-H-U-T-I-A-R-Y-A.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Happy to connect with as many perspectives as I can. Excellent. Well, Vibuti, thank you again for appearing on today's show. It's a pleasure to have you back. And with that, we have now officially finished our content for today's episode. Remember, it was mentioned at the top of the show that this would be a mini series related to social determinants of health and data. Next week, we are going to be talking a little bit more specifically about how this relates to some specific disease states and medication treatment plans. We're going to be introducing Adrian Simmons for our audience, and I really look forward uh, to the for the opportunity for you all to meet her. Now, uh, before we close, I want to make sure you, our listening audience, subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a question or topic, please let us know. You can uh, contact us by DMing us directly on Twitter at Pharmacy Quality and and or you can contact us at info at pharmacyquality.com. Now, before I go here, the beauty, going to bring you back in for final notes. I just want to say thank you so much for furthering the conversation on social determinants and looking at different aspects of it. So thank you for having me. Thank you for engaging. And yeah, let's keep talking. That's an easy enough request to follow. So we'll keep the conversation going. We'll keep the work going. And we look forward to more engagement. Now, with that, for you, our listening audience, I appreciate you listening to the Quality Corner Show. And there is one final message from the PQS team. The Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show has a request for you. Our goal is to spread the word about how quality measurement can help improve health outcomes. And we need your help in sharing this podcast to friends and colleagues in the healthcare industry. We also want you to provide feedback, ask us questions, and suggest health topics you'd like to see covered. If you are a health expert and you want to contribute to the show or even talk on the show, please contact us. 
you can email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what is on your mind, what we can address so that you are fully informed. We want you to be able to provide the best care for your patients and members, and we wish all of you listeners out there well.